Well, as you may have noticed, there was a little bit of a technical glitch that happened with our slides this morning, and that's okay. These things happen. Um, but the, the passage for this morning is not going to be on the screen, but that means that we can look in our apps, or if you have a Bible with you, that's just fine too. It's still the Word of God. So if you're able, please rise as we read God's Word together from James chapter 5, and we'll be reading from uh, verses 7 to verse 12 this morning as we continue in our walk through the book of James. So hear the reading of God's Word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So far, the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would carry the words of this, your humble servant, to those gathered here this morning. That through your power, through your strength, that you would mold and shape lives. That you would watch over these dear ones here. And that your will will not return void. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. There was a snail called Herbert who was so very slow. He caused a lot of traffic jams wherever he would go. The ants were always getting mad, and the beetles, beetles, they would fume, but Herb would always poke along and sing this little tune. Let's see if I can do justice to this song for a second here. Have patience, have patience, don't be in such a hurry when you get impatient. You only start to worry. Remember, remember that God is patient too. And think of all the other times when others have waited for you. I don't know if I did it justice or not. But the song continues, right? When Herbert was much younger, he often got in trouble. Forgetting that he was a snail, he did things on the double. He'd crash through every spider web with crickets he'd collide, till one day Herbert's father took him speeding son aside and sang the same chorus again, right? And then, as you can well imagine, there's a moral to this tale. Some of you may find yourselves behind a creeping snail. So if you get impatient and you're easily disturbed, think about this little song and take a tip from Herb. Have patience, have patience. Some of you may remember that song and that musical, The Music Machine. I remember being a child and putting on the vinyl record of the music machine and playing it over and over and over again and couldn't wait till this song came out because it's just a fun song. And back then, the vinyls had like story pages that you could follow along and there was this really great cartoon of Herbert and him crashing into spider webs and as a young boy, I just thought it was really fun and really great. Some of us may remember that song, maybe even as well as I do, but now as I'm a lot older, it takes on a little bit different tone and tune, doesn't it? 
It occurs to me that Herbert knew a thing or two about being patient. That patience actually is a virtue, and a virtue that many of us could do well to exercise. And this here is what James is talking about as we conclude or come near to the conclusion of chapter 5 of James. So as we near the end of our time in the book of James, it's good to circle back around again and to remember where we've been to some extent, or at least to define the overarching theme of James the way we have walked through it. And that is that James is telling us that faith is something that's at work. But faith isn't our end game, right? It's not the thing that brings us salvation. It's not the thing that brings us closer to God. Faith is the product or the outpouring of our redemption, of our salvation, of the things that God has done for us. So because what the Lord has done, now we have faith because we can look back and we see this is who the Lord is. So faith is not the thing that drives us to God, but rather is the product of what God has done in our lives. And so here at the conclusion of James, his letter to this Jewish diaspora who have gone through tremendous trials and tremendous sufferings, much more than we could ever imagine or even consider, I would say, he's exhorting them to have patience. More patience than they've already exhibited and experienced. And so this undoubtedly, I would imagine, did not come across as soft pastoral counsel from a godly patron saint, most likely it probably would have been met with some consternation and exasperation. Are you kidding me, James? After everything we've been through, after everything that we've suffered, we've been scattered across the country, we've lost our homes, we've lost our jobs, some of us have lost family, and now you're saying to us, have more patience Are you really telling me this right now? Perhaps some of us in this room are feeling the same way as we read James chapter 5. Really? Have more patience? Have more patience than what we've already exhibited to this point? But it's in the midst of suffering that patience is really needed, right? It's in the hard times, in the midst of challenges where it's hard to exercise patience, but it's there where patience is really at play. But if we ponder for just a moment what patience is defined like this, the capacity to accept or tolerate delay trouble or suffering without getting angry or upset. It's in challenge and suffering where patience then is exactly what we need. It's the opportune time to have patience when things are not going our way. Because it's really easy to have patience when things are smooth and things are happening exactly the way that we want them to and God is showing himself faithful and it's easy to see. But how much more difficult is it to have patience when we actually need patience? This is what James is telling us here this morning. So here in the fifth chapter of James, we're given this exhortation. Have patience. Have patience in all things. James tells us the reason or the rationale as to why and how we are to have patience. And the answer may be a little bit different than what we might expect at the outset. We are to have patience as we establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Why do we have patience? Because the Lord's coming back, and the day of the Lord is at hand. But then that doesn't really help 
us right now? As we think about the day of the Lord is at hand, what do we even mean by that? What does James mean by that? And so I want to take just a second here to, to talk about that phrase of what does it mean that the day of the Lord is at hand? Okay, so let's dive into that. We see that these words are present in the book of James, and we see that these words, the day of the Lord is at hand, is, is present throughout Scripture. And yet, these words, James was written some 2,000 years ago, so obviously it wasn't at hand, right? So what do we do with that? Because in our minds, in, in our language, we would say the day of the hand means, the day is at hand means it's imminent. It's, it's going to happen any time now. Well, I want, to, I want to perhaps have us gaze at this phrase a, a little bit differently. And the, and the way the, many scholars and academics look at this phrase is, is like this. Yes, we are to prepare our hearts. We're to establish our hearts and our lives with the anticipation that the return of the Lord could very well indeed happen at this very moment. It could. And I would be overjoyed with that if the Lord Jesus would blow the trumpet right now and take us all home and restore all things. What an amazing time that would be. It could happen. It's possible. But what if we looked at it in this way? So we look at how the Lord has worked throughout history, right? He, he created this creation, the universe, and all things. Out of the power of his, by the power of his voice, out of nothing, he created all things to be. And then he entered into this covenant with Adam and Eve and said, you can't eat of this tree in the center of the garden. If you do, you will die. They did, and God makes a promise. He says, yes, death is happening, but I promise to send someone. I promise to send a redeemer to restore you and to crush the head of the enemy. And so then he fulfills that promise. He does send a redeemer. He does send Jesus Christ, the second person in the Trinity, to be that person, to crush the enemy's head. And he did that. He did that in the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He walked on the earth. He lived. He died. He rose again. But there's still more to come. There's still another phase of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that's his return. So we can say we're not living in the first days back in the Old Testament, back in the Garden of Eden. We're not living in the first days. We're not. We're not living in the days that Jesus walked on earth and was living and talking and doing these things as we could see him in the Gospels. We're not living in those days. There's still another phase, the last phase, the last days. And that last days is when Jesus is restoring the earth and, and preparing for his return. And so we can honestly say with confidence that we are in the last days because we're not in the first days. We're not in the middle days, we're in the last days. And Jesus promises to return, and we can have confidence in that. So he has accomplished much in those times, and he promises that he still has things to accomplish. And oh, how we long for that day. But waiting is the hardest part, right? Waiting is the hardest part. James recognizes this dilemma, and he gives us some practical instruction on how and what patience looks like. He tells us how patience is faith at work. And then he gives us three things that we can apply to help us with having patience as we look forward to the day of the Lord, to the day of his return. You see, because this is the prize. The day that Jesus returns is the prize that we wait for and long for and pray for. 
So let's look at these three things that James tells us very practically, what this looks like to have patience and what patience actually means for us practically here today as we're in the last days preparing for the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The first extremely practical thing that we receive, this instruction that we receive, is found in verse 9. So if you have your Bibles open or an app or wherever it's at, this first instruction is very blunt. He doesn't pull any punches and he says, don't grumble. To have patience means do not grumble. Grumbling is in all seriousness the opposite of patience. If we observe a patience that a person that is grumbling, that person is not patient with the current situation. Are we there yet? How much longer? Can I have dessert now, please? When do we get dessert? These are common things that we laugh at when our children say these things to us as we're on a road trip or wondering if they have to eat all the broccoli before they get dessert. They're not satisfied with their current situation and they want what's coming next. They want to get there and they want their cookie or whatever it is. But grumbling is not reserved for our kids, is it? <laughs> grumbling is not reserved for our children. Grumbling is all too commonplace in big people as well, kids out there. We grumble too. It's all too common with us. We grumble about politics. We grumble about bosses. We, gum, we grumble about our jobs, about the lack of money. We grumble about pastors and elders and deacons, about fellow church members. We grumble about parents. We grumble about children. All that to say, we are not patient people. I wonder what our posture would be if we were to have patience and not to be in such a hurry. Or maybe it would help if I told you another story, a story that speaks directly into the heart of our grumbling, not only against one another, but against the Lord God Almighty. Because as we grumble, it speaks to our lack of faith that God does not know what he's doing or that he has not done everything that he's going to say, or maybe that he hasn't even accomplished everything that we believe he has accomplished for us. So the story goes like this. There was a wealthy man who enlisted the services of an investor. This wealthy man had $10 million he wanted to give to this investor. And so they, they met up for coffee a few times, and they talked about some things, and this, this gentleman said, okay, I'm going to give you my $10 million to invest, and I expect a certain amount of return on my investment. And the investor said, sure, that's great. I can do that for you. Sounds good. So this man took the $10 million and went about his life. Well, the wealthy man was not seeing any ROI, right? He wasn't receiving a return on his, on his investment, so he began to investigate the situation just a little bit. And he began to ask his investor friend some questions about, hey, what's going on with this $10 million that I have? And the investor kind of hemmed and hawed and kind of pushed him off for a little while. And it still kept going on this way. And the wealthy man began to get a little bit more concerned. And he began to look a bit further into the situation. And it turned out the investor had placed all $10 million into some high-risk accounts. And he lost everything. All $10 million was gone. 
As a matter of fact, not only did he lose the money, but he embezzled money and squirreled away some money in his own accounts that he could perhaps even get wealthy on his own. But even that was gone as well. So he embezzled money and he lost money and all of the money was completely gone. There was nothing left, $10 million gone. As a matter of fact, the man actually lied to this wealthy man about what he was doing. A few days later, the wealthy man discovered, or let me put it this way, a few days later, the the wealthy man got together with his investors, with his colleagues, with two of his partners, and they determined that they were going to forgive the entirety of the debt. It's okay. Water under the bridge, it's all good. We can move forward. You go on your way, we'll go on ours. We'll forget it ever happened and everything's good. A few days later, the wealthy man discovered that the investor had given $1,000 to an investor friend of his. And the man who he had requested to invest had also squandered away the $1,000. But this man threw his friend into jail over $1,000 and demanded he pay back the $1,000. He put him in jail and sued him until he could return that money, that $1,000. Well, the wealthy man saw this, and he approached him and said, I forgave $10 million that you embezzled and lost, and you threw a man into jail for $1,000? The wealthy man then threw in his investor into jail until he could repay back $10 million. Now, this is a very familiar story to many of us, just in modern language. It's Matthew 18, right? The unforgiving servant. But who are we in that story? We're the investor who embezzled $10 million. We're the investor who goes after our friends for $1,000 and throws them in jail because we've been hurt, even though we've been forgiven much even though we are the ones that are, 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 are in the wrong. You see, at the heart of grumbling is an understanding that we don't understand our context. We don't understand our situation. We get so upset with other people or situations that we forget just what the Lord has done for us. And we say, look at that person. Look at him. Look at her and what she is doing and what he is doing. I am so much better than this other person. If only they could be like me. If only they had the same mindset as me. If only they would do things in the way and the manner in which I want them to do. And we forget that so much has been given to us. So much has been forgiven of us. You see, we're not the wealthy man. Lord God has forgiven our debt of sin and misery entirely through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The reality is that $10 million pales in comparison to the debt that's been forgiven us. And I can't even imagine what $10 million looks like. That doesn't even register in my brain, $10 million. And we still manage to grumble. We still manage to grumble about what and how God has forgotten us, how God doesn't care about how God doesn't know what he's doing. And furthermore, we turn around and we demand from others what we're not willing to do. You see, patience then is faith at work because patience acknowledges and yields to the sovereignty and the faithfulness of the Lord as gracious, as just, 
and faithful to his will and to you and to others. So the next time we want to keep wrongs of someone, the next time we want to grumble about a boss, next time we want to grumble about our spouse to our friend group, next time we want to grumble about a pastor or elder or employees or employers, next time we want to grumble about anybody, remember $10 million. And what's been forgiven of us and what's been set aside. And then how is it that we respond to one another? How is it that we treat one another in love and compassion? Because this is what Jesus has done for us. The cost that he paid was his life and death in order that we might be set free. And yet how quickly we grumble about and to one another. About just about everything. We've forgotten so much. We've forgotten how much we've been forgiven. James tells us in verse 9 that it gets rather poignant and exact. He says, we need to remember why. Because the judge is at the door. James punches right for the heart here, as he's been known to do as we walk through James, right? He doesn't pull any punches. He goes right to the heart. And he delivers a solid blow to who we really are. We are not patient people. We want ours and we want it now. This is a message that each and every one of us needs to hear this morning. It's not for that person over there. It's not for the person to the right of us or the left of us, in front of us or behind us. It's for me. It's for each one of you. It's for us today, right here and right now. Do not grumble. Do not grumble to yourselves. Do not grumble with your spouse. Do not grumble with your friends or your co-workers. This is not the manner in which mature Christians live their lives. It's not the manner in which mature and humble followers of Jesus go about life. Rather, the person whose faith is at work pours out his or her soul to the Lord. The Psalms are full, full of people crying out to the Lord in anger, frustration, fear, terror. So where do we go when we feel those things brewing up inside of us? We don't run to the nearest person and say, can you believe he did that? Look at the things that I have noticed about her that she has done to me or to you or to us. They don't run to that person and grumble, but rather, uh, rather the psalmist cries out to the Lord. Cries out to the Lord with humility and gentleness and frustration and exasperation. You see, because grumbling is not only an insult to God, but it produces a product of bad attitudes Bitterness, anger towards God and to others. And if it continues, it just festers and festers and continues on and gets worse and worse. Instead, we pour out our hearts and our lives to our God and we lean into his faithfulness because when we grumble, essentially we're saying, God, I don't trust what you're doing. I don't trust that you have this thing under control, so I need to take control of the situation and I'm going to try to figure it out. 
and I have a much better answer, I have a much better way than he does or she does. And we say to God, I don't believe you. I believe in myself and in my plans. So the exhortation here in a very real way, exercise patience with one another and with yourselves. Exercise patience in the outstretched arms of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who beckons you close and urges you to come and bear your hearts and bear your souls and all that you are to him, not to someone else, not to your neighbor, your, to him. Do not grumble. And then he moves forward. And he keeps punching. He keeps punching and going on. And so then as we come to the Lord with all humility, and as we pour out our souls and our lives to God, we begin to understand something about the character of the Lord. And this is what James says. We understand that while we cry out to the Lord in our frustration, our anger, our bitterness, and even, yes, our fear, we understand that Jesus wants to hear, the Lord God wants to know us. James doesn't give us a footnote to his thoughts here, but I think he's referring to something here as we understand the next phase of this, of understanding Exodus 34 and Psalm 103. He says we can do this because God is a God of steadfast love and compassion and mercy. This is ingrained into James' thoughts. This is what he knows about his Lord. This is what he knows about his God. And he continues to pastor his beloved people. And he says, turn your eyes towards Jesus. Turn your eyes to the Lord because he is faithful and he is steadfast to love you and to show you compassion and mercy. He tells them and he tells us that in our difficulty, we are to remain steadfast because the Lord is steadfast in his faithfulness to us. He uses the reference of Job in particular. He says prophets, but then he uses the, the reference of Job and the tremendous heartache and loss that Job experienced. And he says, be steadfast. Be steadfast and, and think of the story of Job and, and how Job has, has lost everything. Everything that he, he knows and he loves and makes him feel who he is and comfortable and important and loved. But you notice he's not commending Job. He's not saying to them, he's not saying to us this morning, hey, be like Job. Have more steadfastness like Job. If you're like Job, then you'll be a really great person. That's not what he's saying. He's using Job as a reference to say, this is a really terrible situation, and think of all the things that he has lost. What he's saying that even in the middle of tremendous sorrow and heartache that Job experienced, He's not saying be a better Job, Ryan. He's saying in the middle of all that heartache, in the middle of all of that pain, the Lord is better. Not that you have to be better, because the Lord is better. The Lord is the one that is steadfast. He is the one that's faithful to you, to Job, even in the middle of heartache, even in the middle of loss. The Lord is faithful. He is steadfast. If the Lord is steadfast in his faithfulness to Job, who literally lost everything, 
then we can be sure that the Lord is steadfast in His faithfulness to us as well. We like to think of suffering in the terms of Job, though, don't we? When we think of suffering, we think of suffering in, in big things, in, in hard things, in the extremes of suffering. And there are some in this room this morning that are indeed experiencing some of that right now. And this speaks well to you, that the Lord is steadfast to you today. He is steadfast in His love and mercy. He is steadfast in His care and His faithfulness to you. But for many of us in this room right now, suffering isn't the loss of everything that we hold dear, isn't the loss of all of the loved ones. We are experiencing more minor sufferings. I would say we've lost some conveniences, perhaps. We've lost some comforts, perhaps. We've lost some things that may make our lives a little bit easier or apparently easier. But we have not lost the Lord, and He has not lost us. And because of that, we're able to remain steadfast in the rock of our salvation, in the strong tower that secures our path. We know this because like Job, like the prophets, we too are able to look behind us and we're able to see the Lord was faithful to Job. He was faithful to the prophets. He was faithful to the people of Israel as they walked across dry land. He was faithful to the people as they went through the wilderness. He was faithful to the people as he brought them and us a Savior. And he's faithful now to us as well today in this hour and in this moment. So he says, be steadfast, not in your own abilities, not in, in your strength and in your, in your understandings, but be steadfast in the mercy and the faithfulness of God and what he has done for you. And then he concludes this section of James chapter 5 in perhaps a little bit odd, strange kind of way. We so want to be right, don't we? We want to have the right answer. We want to, to, have, to badly have our opinions be heard and warranted and be told that we've done a really great job. We want to be seen as the ones who have all the answers and have all the wisdoms and have others point to us and say, see, he knows what he's doing. He can set the course. He can set the direction. We go to all sorts of lengths to prove our worth, even to the point of swearing. Not that kind of swearing, not the four-letter kind of swearing, but an oath or a vow. We take oaths to say, I swear that I know this or that. Or perhaps we can say the kind of swearing of, I cross my heart and hope to die, as we said when we were kids, right? Speaking of music machine, we would say these things as well. This seems like an odd thing to say, the conclusion of a treatise on patience. But it actually fits in quite nicely if we take a look at it. Because when we swear, we are saying that we believe in this much more than anything else. We are saying that this is final. And there's nothing more that needs to be said. I've said I'm right, and I swear by it. End of story. There's no more conversation to be had. There's no more higher power to go to because I have said it, and this is just the way it is, and I'll swear on someone's name, I'll swear on my career, I swear on my mother's name, or whatever it may be. End of conversation. My statement is authoritative, my statement is right, and that's just the end of it. Because when we swear, we are saying there's nothing more 
that's important than what I have already said. I swear by the name of someone other than the Lord. But in reality, what we're saying is that we have more belief and faith and patience in the thing that we're swearing by than by the Lord himself. James is not saying that we should never swear. As a matter of fact, we actually have an entire chapter in the Westminster Confession to oaths and confessions and lawful vows. So what James is saying, that in our steadfast faithfulness, in the sovereignty of the Lord, we trust that he will be the one to govern all things. He is the one that is steadfast. He is the one that governs all things and manages all things and is sovereign over all things. We trust that he will be the one to take care of everything. And that there is no higher name other than the Lord God Almighty to swear by. And so then our integrity is based upon, not on ourselves, but on the faithfulness and the steadfastness of the Lord God Almighty. And so that's why he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, because we believe that God is sovereign over all things and we trust in him. And so therefore our integrity says, this is what I believe in. This is where my faith lies, not in my own self, but in the Lord God Almighty. And so in all of that, let us then establish our hearts and our lives on the steadfastness of the Lord God and Him alone. Because there is no more solid ground than the ground which is rooted in the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. As that old song says, all other ground is sinking sand, sinking sand. You see, faith at work is patience at work. Patience at work is leaning into the steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness and sovereignty of the Lord God. Patience at work is leaning into the steadfast love and mercy that is found in the compassion of the cross. For it is there where we see, experience, and know what love and faithfulness actually looks like. At the cross, it's more clear. At the cross, it's more vivid. At the cross, compassion and love is on full display. Patience at work then is leaning into the promise that we are in the last days and that Jesus is coming back and he will restore all things. He was faithful to Israel. He was faithful to Job. He's been faithful to us. And so we can say with the apostles and we can say with James, I swear by the name of the Lord God Almighty because there is no other name under heaven by which we see and understand compassion and mercy more. He's been faithful to the church for thousands of years and he's been faithful to this church for decades. And so then as we look back in our own lives, as we look back on the lives of this church, the lives of our families, we too see the steadfast faithfulness of the Lord through it all. And he says, this is what patience looks like, to lean into the faithfulness of the Lord God. So my friends, hear these words. The Lord is compassionate. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is steadfast to you in love and in mercy. So friends, 
Have patience. Don't be in such a hurry. Amen.